Good afternoon, everybody. This is Debbie Grubb, and it is my honor to serve and to have served for the past several years um, as chair of the American Council of the Blind Special Education Task Force. And with me today are three people that I am so excited to bring to you. First, we're going to be hearing from a mother who has advocated on behalf of her child since he began his his free and appropriate public education journey. Her name is Tara Armstrong, and her child attends the Kentucky School for the Blind and will be graduating this spring. And I'm going to let in a moment Tara tell you all about that and her journey as a mother advocate. The next person we're going to hear from is Lori Scharf. Lori has had a tremendous social work background in terms of blindness and is now now becoming a rehab teacher. And on our, our task force, she has been a guiding light to me, so helpful and so affirming, and her knowledge is um, astounding. And then finally, I'm so happy also to have with us Mark Reichert. Mark has had a long career of working with public policy, and it shows. As you all know, we have been working for several years to bring the Cogswell-Macy Act into existence either as a law or in its components within a reauthorization of IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And I am so glad to have Mark here today. What I want to say before I stop talking and we bring on these people, it is our desire on the task force to equip everyone who wants to, to be a mentor and a guide and to help someone who is responsible for the, the public education of a child who's blind and visually impaired. Some parents and guardians and counselors and even teachers hardly know where to begin or what to ask what they have the right to ask for. And so it is our constant goal to bring this kind of helpful and affirming information to them. And we in ACB are so proud of the next gen folks and what they are doing to bring young people into this organization and make them feel included and important. And if we had a next gen person here today, I am sure they would say, that this journey needs to start even before a child is out of school. A child needs to learn that he, she, or whatever other pronoun they choose has a right to achieve success according to that child's ability to do so. And it is our goal to help people understand that and to know what to ask for and what to do to ensure that that child does receive the very best opportunity for the very best outcome possible. So I'm going to begin by giving Tara Armstrong a few minutes to talk to you about her child, Logan, who will be graduating from the Kentucky School for the Blind this spring. She's going to talk to you about her advocacy journey the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the celebratory, and what she has learned, and give all of us who hopefully will either be advocating directly for or helping somebody to advocate for some good tips and tricks to do the best job possible. So Tara, thank you so much for coming, and welcome to this event, 
and we we're ready to hear all the wonderful things that you have to say. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Tara Armstrong, and I have a 20-year-old son named Logan Armstrong, who is uh, currently a senior at the Kentucky School for the Blind, and he will be graduating in May. Uh, Logan is our only child. Um, we have pretty much made him our number one priority from day one. Um, he was blind uh, since birth, and he was born with optic nerve hypoplasia. Um, he also has growth hormone deficiency, um, and that's something that um, isn't necessarily, uh, doesn't go along with blindness. It's more of, uh, goes along with the optic nerve hypoplasia. Um, he was also diagnosed with mild high-functioning autism at seven years of age. Um, a couple gifts that Logan uh, was blessed with. Um, he has the ability to play the piano by ear. Um, he has what's called perfect pitch. Um, he actually started playing um, on one of his little toy keyboards at 18 months of age. Um, he started um, feeling around and playing the notes of Mary Had a Little Lamb and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Um, and now he is a beautiful piano player. Um, he can play anything by ear. Another gift he was given, um, he was uh, blessed with an autobiographical memory, which pretty much means he can recall dates, um, what days of the week a certain date was on. He can not only tell you that, but he can tell you uh, what happened that day or any kind of event, um, basically, that he, he can go back years. It, it's amazing. Um, with the autism, when we got the diagnosis, um, he has had, he struggled many years with a lot of sensory issues. Um, more or less what's known as sensory processing disorder. He had a lot of um, struggles with loud noises, uh, certain textures, the feeling of certain things, um, even eating certain textures he had trouble with. Um, due to that, um, he struggled many years to learn to read Braille, um, many years. Uh, we, we, um, we're blessed now that he is actually, um, he's a proficient Braille reader. But uh, during his school years, um, I can relate, I'm sure a lot of other parents can, um, with the many hours of IEP meetings. He had a meeting that was under two hours in all the years that he's been in school. But, um, we use a respectful but firm approach towards advocating for Logan. Um, I like to call it a why not approach. Uh, see what works. Not try any and everything that's out there. Um, and then go from there. See what, what doesn't, what does work and then what doesn't work. Um, Logan, he had many, many therapies over the years, not just your usual OT, PT, speech, et cetera. We 
we tried everything. I don't think there's anything that we didn't try. Um, we tapped into uh, therapeutic horseback riding, chiropractic therapy. We even made several trips to Nashville to see an autism doctor when he was younger after he was diagnosed. Um, we tried diet changes. We, we did the biomedical route. Uh, did a lot of supplement, nutritional supplements, and we kind of, uh, we tried everything to see where the puzzle pieces fit, basically, and finally we found, um, you know, the, the right fit, um, actually, when he was about uh, 12 years of age. Um, over the years, uh, due, like I said, due to the sensory issues, he struggled to learn to read Braille. But um, eventually the connection was made thanks to his first Braille teacher and especially his second Braille teacher and current uh, teacher, Ms. Pam Cox. She has spent the last two years um, tirelessly and endlessly working with Logan um, to where he has, he has um, overcome the obstacle. He is now what's called a proficient braille reader um he knew when he had overcome this obstacle uh back uh, about a year and a half ago he was asked to read news headlines on the kentucky school for the blind radio station two days a week um it was kind of his aha moment where he knew that he had overcome something that he had struggled with for so long um now, I am very proud to say that he will be graduating in May, like I said earlier, and he will be his career goal. He is uh, wanting to become a Braille, uh, certified Braille proofreader uh, through the American Printing House for the Blind, uh, which may take up to a year and a half to accomplish, but he is ready for the challenge. Um, we know that um, once he obtains certification, he will be able to apply for a job at the printing house uh, where he will be proofreading um, Braille books. Um, and Ms. Pam Cox, we have a lot of uh, thanks, you know, to her for helping him work towards achieving this goal. And he is so excited to get started. Um, and you know, he, he still wants to, he's a very good typist on um, his laptop. He is going to uh, apply to take some online clerical classes through a local community college uh, to obtain his data entry operator certificate as well. Um, in addition to that, he is wanting to get a part-time job uh, so that he has enough time to work towards his main career goal, which is to become a certified Braille proofreader at the print, at American Printing House for the Blind. Um, you know, the last, last thoughts I'd like to end this with, um, I have learned, both my husband and I, that the best advice that we can give is to never, ever give up on your child. Um, never say never. Anything is possible. Uh, always advocate for what you feel is right and what they deserve. You have the biggest voice. 
Um, there might be times that you will be discouraged, but never give up because that window of learning uh, and opportunity only closes if you let it. And thankfully, we are blessed uh, to say that Logan's window is still open. Thanks to all the support that he has received over the years. And um, just to think that just 10 years ago, he could barely read any Braille words at all. And now he's working. Um, he's making that his career goal since he has become a proficient Braille reader. He is working towards becoming a certified um, proofreader at the American Printing House for the Blind. Uh, thank you all. Tara, that was a breathtaking and hope-inspiring chat that you had with us. And I hope none of us ever forget it. And I hope all of us here today will urge parents and friends and anybody working with a child, no matter what the disability in terms of blindness, vision impairment, to listen to this podcast. Thank you so much, Tara. And I hope that you will stay with us in case we have time for questions. Thank you. You are so welcome, dear. The next person who is going to speak is Lori Scharf. And I have asked Lori to kind of give us an overview of what we can expect on behalf of the children for whom we're responsible right now in the classroom setting. What we have a right to, um, how to get it happen, how to get it to happen, and how best to use the IEP process and other processes available to ensure that right now your child has the best opportunity and gets everything that that child is entitled to. So Lori, take it away. Thank you. So um, I would just like to say that a lot of my advocacy work took place in New York, uh, which is where I used to live. And um, I now live in Virginia. But this would apply to anybody throughout the United States. Um, Obviously, you know, as we all know, there are state as well as federal laws that um, control the education system. And for children with disabilities, um, you know, their their, uh, academic needs are met through the um, federal legislation that covers their rights as a child with a disability. Um, And for people who may be listening and are part of an affiliate, um, you as an affiliate have the ability to be mentors to blind children, to be an advocate for, um, with a parent of a blind child in an individualized education plan meeting. And frequently, um, these two roles can merge because you want to get to know the child that you're working on behalf of. And really, um, you know, when you're working with a child who is blind, it is important to understand what their current level of functioning is and what their potentials are. I once worked with a child who had a very complex syndrome and 
he was probably about 12 years old, but academically was functioning on a kindergarten level. And this was a regression. Until he was about 10, he was typically developing. And it's a mitochondrial disorder that basically at the age of about 10, it flips on and there is a major decline. So this was a big struggle for the parents. And in this case, he developed a combination of both visual and hearing impairments. So what we first looked at is how can the school environment be the most supportive for him. And he happened to be homeschooled because of his complex health needs. But mom needed to know what to ask for. So to go in in that type of situation, things that um, as an ACB affiliate you can recommend is a learning media assessment and a functional visual assessment. And, you know, a functional visual assessment can be done by a um, an eye doctor or a low vision therapist, but it also can be done in an educational setting to see how those types of things affect him. So in this case, this particular child had a cortical visual, what would be considered a cortical visual impairment. Um, and as a result, he needed high contrast and not a lot of clutter on the screen. And then we began addressing what are his communication needs. Ultimately, down the road, he would lose all of his hearing for receptive communication. Um, and because of his physical limitations, we had to come up with a way to have him express him, his needs um, because using a sign form of communication was not going to be possible. So in this particular case... Um, you know, we really worked closely to come up with these different things. And initially, his teacher of the visually impaired, who I might add was on her way out the door to retire, was like, well, we don't even have to think about his ability to communicate. And I'm like, no, you really do, because at some point it's going to become a need. So when we, um, you know, went into the IEP meeting, I had met with him and met with his mom and, you know, we had a plan as to how this was going to be laid out on. Sadly, the school district really had to be pushed on a lot of, on a lot of different things. Um, the other thing as a, um, ACB affiliate that you might want to, um, have somebody, work on or if you have somebody that has experience in the educational field is to understand like the the uh, points of the expanded core curriculum for blind children and understand that those areas of support to a blind child are very critical and include a lot of type incidental type of learning um, and the special education task force is here to be supportive to the different affiliates, um, we actually worked closely with somebody in Massachusetts um, to resolve a situation there about a year ago. Um, and um, But great advocates are needed all over the place, and it's really about educating yourself as an advocate and understanding the needs of the person that you're working on behalf of. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we have to say to a parent, well, you know what? 
this might not be a realistic goal, but let's think of something that's a little more realistic. The gentleman that I was speaking of earlier, the mother wanted to put on his IEP that they would work on him um, creating books because he liked to, to read and write. And I had to politely say to her that, you know, we don't want to give him a task that's going to be too difficult, but we want to, you know, help him function at the level that he's able to function at. And his disability was rather complex because, because on some days he was able to function very well, but other days he could barely tell you his name. Um, it, it really was very complex. So his IEP had to be written in such a manner that it was very fluid and took into consideration the complexity of his situation. And what I really did in that situation was help the parent to understand that we have to look at the peaks and valleys of his level of functioning. Um, and we were able to do that and it, it, it worked out well for him. Um, the other thing to keep in mind when advocating is that very often, a lot of times we're dealing with families who may not understand the educational system here in the United States. I worked with a family who had a child who was an English language learner. When he came to kindergarten, he posture-wise would look up at the ceiling because he would get stimulation from the lights. Um, he did not have any eye contact and very, very minimal English or Spanish spoken language skills. And that was really because everything was done for him by the parents and they had not had any formal early intervention. And we were able to really work very closely over his educational time and make sure that he was able to get the Braille that he needed. He had a change of vision teachers at one point um, when one retired and a new one started. And this is rather funny because we ended up bringing somebody in to consult and um, the vision professional who was a teacher, certified teacher of the visually impaired and a low vision uh, specialist, we were talking about these fabulous in air quote pictures that this new teacher had drawn but the child kept complaining he couldn't understand them and the consult handed me the pictures as somebody who's totally blind and said Lori tell me what this is and I said look you know we're talking about a middle schooler here there's no way that he's going to understand what this is it was an assignment to identify curly hair versus straight hair and the genetics associated with them. So she had drawn these little tiny circles that were about the size of a dime and a line off of them and a braille, a braille letter next to them. But there was no text accompanying it. There was no way to understand that these circles were supposed to be indicative of heads and the lines coming off of them were supposed to be hair. There was no supporting documentation. Um, so it was, it just worked out that here we were at an IEP meeting. Um, it ultimately that teacher ended up getting fired for another reason. And he got this fabulous braille teacher 
a teacher of the visually impaired who really worked very hard at, at getting material put into Braille for him and making sure that everything was in Braille. He now is for his second year in a row on the president's list at his local uh, college where he's studying computer science. Um, so it is important to really work closely with the parents, work closely and get to know the child. And, you know, the education task force is here to really be support in understanding, you know, what a child might need. Um, and I guess I will conclude. Thank you. And thank you for making it real through the, the story of that child. Mark Riker, who is now the interim director of AER, has a long history in the blindness movement. It is his passion. And I'm going to ask Mark to talk to us a little bit about a thumbnail sketch of Cogswell Macy, what it is, what it does, why we need it, and how we as individual advocates and as affiliate organizations, and of course, our national organization, what we can do to, in a more real way, get it brought on the radar screen, either as um, part of IDEA or as a standalone act. So, Mark, the floor is yours. Teach <laughs> us and express to us. Thank you so much, Debbie. And, uh, well, panelists often say what I'm about to say, and I'm sure they all mean it. Uh, but, boy, do I really ever mean it. Uh, just really cool to be on a panel like this um, with, if you'll forgive the expression, Tara and Lori and Debbie, uh, good to be on a panel with real people. Um, sometimes those of us who, you know, work in the policy space get to uh, rub up against a lot of people with um, big mouths that not a whole lot comes out of them. Uh, and or, or, or people who will say yes to you when they have no intention of helping. And, you know, it's just part of the game. Uh, and sometimes it's easy to get cynical about that sort of thing or jaded or whatever. So it's a real gift, Debbie, uh, to get to be part of this little group. Um, so to be compliant and to answer your question, so uh, the Coswell Macy bill, uh, we, uh, you know, the long and the short of it uh, is this, that uh, we need to ident better identify who all the blind and visually impaired kiddos are. Uh, we need to properly evaluate them in light of the fact that there's something up with their eyeballs. And we need to guarantee that once the evaluations are done, let's say, yep, uh, for sure, this kid's got something up with their eyeballs. And here are the specifics about what that means for this particular child. Uh, then certain you know, services and instructional uh, techniques and such should be deployed for that child to meet their unique needs. I mean, sounds really basic. And you're right. If you said, you mean to tell me that uh, our national special education law that's been in place since 1975 doesn't do that? It doesn't properly identify kids. We don't evaluate them. We don't serve them. And the long and the short of it is, by and large, not so much. There are some parts of the country. Yeah, it's a big, It's a big place, this place we call America. Uh, there are some Great places around the country that do an awesome job. There are states that do better than other states. There are parts of states, counties, individual districts that do a heck of a lot better than just the district right next door uh, because that's just how our system works. And, uh, and there you have it. 
but no, by and large, you know, while we have had success in this country at kicking open the neighborhood schoolhouse door for you know, kiddos with disabilities generally, uh, we have not um, uh, gotten to a point where, you know, we can say safely that we are succeeding at getting uh, children the education that is truly appropriate, as the law would require, you know, once that kid gets in the schoolhouse door. So, right, so properly identifying kiddos with vision impairment, properly evaluating kiddos with vision impairment, properly serving kiddos with vision impairment. So now, with that sort of three legs of the stool, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's put some paint on those three-legged stools. So what does all that mean, or what are some elements that we have to remember? Well, Tara, your son Logan is a perfect example uh, of the of the child that often uh, is overlooked, uh, mis. I was about to say misdiagnosed. I suppose that's true, but but in the special ed context, uh, miscategorized or left behind. You know, use whatever cliche but important phrase you want uh, because a child who has uh, experienced some kind of vision loss but lives with other stuff, uh, including if that other stuff might even be from a certain perspective, quote unquote, more, you know, more severe or what we now call more significant, even than their vision loss. Uh, it, that child is often put in a different category than blind or visually impaired. You know, there are different categories in the law. There are 13 different categories. So often that child is classified as having quote unquote, multiple disabilities and not quote unquote, blindness or vision impairment. And they only and- have to fall under one. They only, and what's so frustrating about it is the law itself is explicit in saying that categorization like that should not be the determination, determiner in what kind of services kiddo gets. It should be on the basis of what the IEP team comes up with after proper evaluation. There are all these lovely phrases in the law, but the practical reality of it is when, you know, teacher or school district is shoving kids into various categories. I mean, I, I didn't know this until someone told me this several years ago. You literally are sitting in front as an educator or administrator. You're literally sitting in front of a computer screen and you have a drop-down menu and you click on the thing that's, you know, primary, secondary, and sometimes the systems allow tertiary disability categories. And there you have it. And then the, then the wheels of injustice uh, grind slow, but unfortunately right over kiddo's head uh, because services are neglected and attitudes are, are not uh, attuned to the child's functional vision impairment needs. And so what the Cosmo Macy bill comes along and says is, yep, uh, we, enough of that. Um, we're not going to micromanage because of course we don't do that in America. We do not tell states with any great degree of rigid, uh, you know, top-down control precisely how to do it. Um, there are a lot of requirements in IDA that kind of look like that. But honestly, guys, um, those are the exceptions that kind of prove the rule. We have such a hands-off approach, believe it or not, uh, in this country. And uh, we can debate over your adult beverage of choice sometime when we all get together again, whether, you know, this is political philosophy here. But as, a, as far as special ed goes, we're very um, accommodating for states to let them try to do what, to interpret the law and apply it within certain boundaries. So we're not going to tell states, okay, throw your entire categorization system out the window, throw that computer system I was just talking about out the window entirely. But what we do demand is that when kiddo has 
something up uh, in with, uh, with with their vision. That by definition, this means first of all, they are counted, identified. Those, the data shows that they are in fact, quote unquote, one of our kids. That those services that are uh, the, the evaluations and services that are articulated in the law, and some that frankly are not yet articulated in the law, should be. Uh, brought into play for that child. And I'll conclude about that in a second. The, so, so it's that kind of stuff. We're not trying to say, uh, as some advocate said to me a couple of years ago, you mean to tell me really what this whole console Macy bill thing is all about is you people in the blindness system trying to ratchet up the number of your kids uh, just to try to show, you know, that you're, uh, you're just trying to increase your numbers. Which, first of all, you want, you know, in those situations, I'm not a particularly physically violent person, but you want to throw a pie in their face or something, you know, when you hear that kind of nonsense. The truth is, our kids are already out there. The Department of Education thinks there's only about 30 some thousand of them. APH thinks there's about 60,000. The numbers that the academics and the researchers tell us are at least well over 100,000. The truth is, it's probably even bigger than that. And, uh, and why? Because <clears throat> our kids are not just. Kids like me, uh, when I was growing up, uh, whose only other disability other than blindness is having, you know, perpetual diarrhea of the mouth, right? I mean, that's my only disability is vision loss, okay? So that's a minority of kids uh, who are in our community. Those folks already exist. We're just not, we're just not properly acknowledging that if you're going to reach kiddo with autism or, you know, pick your other favorite other disability category, if there's something up with vision, you I, and Lori illustrated that perfectly for us. You're 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 gonna you're not going to be able to provide categorically. You're not going to be able to provide a free and appropriate public education to that kid because that's how kids learn uh, primarily through, as we all know, uh, most of us in, our, in the world are primarily visual uh, learners. So I'll just wrap up by saying the you know Cosmo Macy Bill is all about counting, evaluating, and serving. Kids, particularly kids who are blind and vision impaired, who have other disabilities, uh, we are joined in this fight uh, by our friends in the deafness and deaf blindness communities. Who, while you know all three of our groups uh, have you know unique issues, etc., uh, for sure those issues are parallel in terms of our experiences. And so the Cogswell Macy Bill goes into some depth in applying that sort of three legs of the stool thing to the, all the sensory disabilities community. And uh, one little, I guess, coda here uh, is that the Council Macy bill um, has language in it that would say, you know, uh, in the blindness system, we've got some wonderful organizations like APH and some of the, you know, the schools for the blind, of course, do a great job and all the rest. What we don't have is kind of a, a central hub, almost kind of like a mothership, if you will, for uh, conducting research for developing innovative programming, um, and, and on and on. And so what, what could we do to um, sort of organize and amp up the capacity of the blindness system to do that work? And so the Cogswell Macy bill calls for the creation of something called the Ann Sullivan Macy Center on Visual Disability and Education Excellence, which is a mouthful to say, and that's my standard joke. It doesn't spell out anything, the acronym, but we couldn't <laughs> figure out. I, I clearly had not, uh, I hadn't had, enough shots of Bailey's or something that came, but in any case, uh, what that title should tell you is exactly what it's all about. It's not a center. It's not a new building. It would be a collaboration among the organizations, 
not unlike the organizations that assembled last night in President Spoon's fireside chat. Every one of those organizations, and frankly, even even I could imagine that the, the blind events even somehow playing a, a part uh, in that effort, which would be kind of intriguing to think more about. But it would be a collaboration among those groups to meet a number of goals, particularly around research and development of new innovative programs. My conclusion comment is you know, this uh, center is named after Annie Sullivan, of course, Helen Keller's much-loved teacher. And uh, I am I, struck um, by Tara Lo- uh, Logan's story. And uh, people f- always forget, uh, and, and I do too, I need to remind myself, that Annie Sullivan you know, was not only Helen Keller's teacher, uh, she's a lady with, with blindness and vision impairment. She's a, she's a, she's a person who has a disability, significant one at that. And, and there was just something, I don't care if it sounds condescending, there's just something beautiful. Uh, and, and I think illustrative or exemplary about someone who has that life experience themselves, uh, playing a, such a significant role. I think the Lord only knows, uh, what Logan's future will be and how, uh, what impact that maybe none of us will ever know about that might very well be just as significant uh, as Annie's. And, uh, and, and so that kind of storytelling, like I just did just now, is exactly, uh, Debbie, what I think is at the heart of any of the advocacy work that we do. Um, and it's, it's going to happen this week uh, as ACB folk uh, go to you know, interact with policymakers. Uh, all the data in the world and all the job booming by uh, policy nerds like me, that's fine. But what, what has always made the big difference uh, are those personal stories. Uh, they always have and always will. And uh, so be front and center with those and go get them. Thank you, Mark. I want to say uh, before we open for a couple of questions that I, like Mark and Lori, Blindness is my only disability. And I kind of am spirited and go get them. And I learned what I needed to learn. I didn't realize until I was older how visual learning is. And I'm going to tell you a story. I was actually in college. I'm going to embarrass myself, but it's for a good cause. I was in college. And one day we all got picnic boxes, you know, the ones that are all put together. And in this box was a bag of potato chips. And I began to open the potato chips like I always do, you know, that little rough thing at the top of the bag. It's kind of like the seal. And I reached over to the end of the bag and I'm getting ready to try to rip this thing off. And one of my friends said, because we are very good friends. And she said, let me show you something. She took my two hands, she put my right hand on one side of the bag, my left hand on the other side of the bag, and she pulled them apart. And like magic, the bag of potato chips opened. Now, had I been able to see, I would probably have learned that at a very, very young age. But what it did was it taught me a truth that any of us who are blind, no matter how smart we think we are, or what our IQ is, Learning is a visual thing. And what Mark and Lori have said is so true. If we don't accommodate for the visual issues that any child has, it impacts that child's learning for the rest of their lives. And so I hope my little story helps to bring that home. 
And now, without any further ado, in the few minutes we have left, Debbie, um, do we, yes, it's Lori. I just would like to say the, um, you know, I that it's very confusing, um, you know, for a lot of people that that you can only be classified under one and then select other disabilities. And that I think, and I have said for years, is a real disservice as children are being born earlier and early, earlier, living with more and more health issues and medical issues, because we really need to be able to, to classify them in every category that they need services in. I've been in situations where school districts as Mark said, they purchase software to to allow them to do IEPs, literally. And you purchase it based on what you think you need. And I sat in an IEP meeting, and in, the, in their vision section, it just said Braille services. Because they didn't purchase all the services that from the... The, the computer, the software manufacturer. So there was no learning media assessment. They kept saying to me, oh, it's a communications assessment. I said, the child here is fine. This is a learning media assessment. It's not anything pertaining to, you know, hearing. And it, we had it, we went back and forth over this. But if you don't, you know, really have the ability to understand and, and you know, meet with people and educate yourself, which is, is what we all are here for. It's important to know those type of things to get the services for children that are so critical. Thank you, Lori. Um, do we have any hands, Lucy? Yes, we do. <laughs> Probably more hands than we have time for. <laughs> um, how many do you oh. want to take? <laughs> well, just just call on one and guys we have a very so can you keep your question brief so we can get as many questions asked and answered because we are running low on time but it was so important what these people had to say so lucy okay. just go for it <laughs> Deanne hart you should be able to unmute lucy do you want to call on the hey. next one so they can be working on unmuting you know what i'm saying sure Okay. Tristan. Tristan. All right. This is this is this is Deanne. Um, my question is in regard to or I want to compliment Tara for her for her testimony. Um, because I have several friends who have had situations where they have had children who the blindness condition has been uh, dealt with in the IEPs, but the other conditions have not. And unfortunately, those people have be- those children have become adults now, and moved into the uh, working world, and they're having troubles getting their other aco- their other disabilities accommodated for. And that's just my comment. And any feedback somebody can give to me on how to uh, maybe work them to work through the system and get better services that. Uh, maybe in the adult, adult services when they haven't received them through the IEP program. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Deanne. And that's one of the reasons we're going to tell stories and work for Cogswell Macy. And um, we will, and we will um, definitely get somebody in touch with you about the adult services thing. Oh, and you can also okay. reach out to the rehab task force. Exactly. 
They're wonderful people as well, and they do deal with with this kind of thing. Okay, let's go for one more question, Uh, Lucy, and I think you said Tristan. Tristan, yes. Are you unmuted, Tristan? Yes. Can you hear me? We can. Go for it. All right. So it's kind of a two-part question here. Um, The first part is, um, so is the Cogswell-Macy Act um, kind of going to supersede HIPAA? In the sense that it'll allow you to um, the host has acknowledged your really identify who and where the um, students with visual impairments are, as well as and be able to refer them for um, for services and education. And the second part of that is, will this, um, will Cogswell Macy also apply for college students? Great. Uh, Mark, the second- why don't you give the, why don't you give us a Oops. quick answer? Oh yeah. Uh, let's see. Did I get, I'm, you're, I'm you're muted. Very cool. Yay. So the second question, uh, the short answer is no, it's, I mean, it's meant for kids who qualify for special education and related services. It's not quote unquote in that sense applicable to, you know, folks in college, there would be other statutes like the Higher Education Act or other places to look uh, for that population primarily. On the first question, uh, good for you. Excellent that you're thinking about the intersectionality, if you will, of this law with other laws. The fundamental uh, uh, expectation in IDEA that a parent has to, you know, consent to the evaluations that are done are conducted for a child. Uh, stays in place. So there's no such thing as, you know, trying to snoop around uh, in, you know, what may be up with a particular child uh, without, frankly, the parent's involvement, just as it is today. I think the real challenge, uh, the real, the benefit of Cogswell Macy would come along to say to state bureaucracies, uh, you know, heads up, your categorization system is, is not great, but if you want to do it, that's fine for counting numbers of warm bodies, but that's all that it should be used for uh, in terms of figuring out what your so-called per-pupil expenditure is and all those kinds of things. But when you're talking about this child, if this child has, I don't care how many other disabling conditions, blindness is, you know, vision loss is in that mix, then certain assumptions should apply, which means parent should be alerted to the fact that these other types of evals, like uh, folks here on this call, we're talking about learning media assessment, functional visual assessment, those kinds of things are available and should be done. Parent is still going to have to consent uh, to those kinds of uh, evals overall, uh, as they otherwise would. I hope that answers your question. Well, we are about out of time and we don't want to take time from the rehab people because that is extremely important too. I want to thank each of you for coming and I hope that we can bring more stories to the front and let people know one child at a time, one story at a time, how important it is that their blindness be acknowledged and, and, and that appropriate tools are in place to help them deal with this and learn to the very best of their abilities, because that's what this is all about, to give a person an opportunity to achieve everything that that person can achieve.
And so thank you, Tara. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Mark. Thanks to each of you for coming. And we are now going to look forward to Doug Powell and his uh, rehab task force. I know I'll be listening over on the A-Lady. So thank you, everybody. And please, please, please do tell your friends to listen to this podcast. It is well worthwhile. Bless you all. And thank you from the heart. Goodbye. Thank you, Debbie.